Good morning. Good morning. My name is Wendell Moses. I'm filling in for Tim Jennings. Tim is in Nashville for a the conference. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of talking about you, to studying your word. Send your spirit to be in this place. Guide our thoughts. Guide our, our voices. May we honor you. May we learn from you. Amen. So I was telling some people that were here before, um, I was press, uh, prepared for the week and got up this morning to print out my notes and turn on my computer, and um, something came on the news that kind of changed my intro. Okay, so I've spent the last hour going through a couple things, and some of these things will make no sense to anyone who is younger. Okay? If you were alive, May 6, 1954... Where were you? That was when Roger Bannister first ran a mile less than four minutes. Where were you on March 18th, 1965, if you were? That was the first time a person walked in space outside of a spaceship. It was done by Alexei Leonov, Russian, first guy to walk in space. He died today. Today. If you were alive in 1969, where were you on July 16th, 1969, when the first person landed on the moon? Neil Armstrong. One small step. Okay? All these, get this, all these are team efforts. Okay? The four-minute mile, he had pacers to make sure that the first half of that mile was less than four minutes, okay? He also had a specific track he was running on. It rained the night before. They were a little bit worried. It was a muddy track, but it was a team effort. In August 16th, 2009, where were you? That was the first time a human ran a 100-meter dash in less than 10 seconds. Usain Bolt. On October 12th, 2019, Remember this day, because this is the first day that anyone in the world has ever run a marathon in less than two hours. One hour, 59 minutes, and 40 seconds. I'm going to butcher his name. Elaud Kipchogji, something like that. The speed at which he's running is four minutes and 34 seconds. A mile, every mile, for 26.2 miles, okay? It was a team of 42 people, 41 pacers, one central runner who was running in a pod of runners, and, and he had in four laps on this route in Vienna, Austria. The route was relatively level. He never changed by more than 12 meters, total distance, the, the total thing. Um, the spot Vienna, Austria was chosen because of the temperature and the fact that it would not rain on this week during this, this, um, attempt at the at the record. Okay. They tried it once before three years ago. They missed it by 17 seconds. Okay. Same guy. So, um, they had seven runners in a pod used to break the wind. He got his drinks during his run, how he could drink. I don't know. Anyway, 
Uh, marathon's incredible. Um, he got his drinks on a bicycle. Someone with a bicycle came up beside him and gave him his drinks. You know, there was a pace car in front of them with a laser line on the road saying, Pacers, you have to hit this mark to get, for him to make the record. 42 people to, to break this record. I think it's incredible. Four minutes and 34 seconds per mile, every mile for 26 miles. Now, I will have to say that this is a, a little personal to me. I'm a runner, so to speak, very loosely. Um, um, I have a treadmill that's in my basement that, that's now retired, trying to rehab it for someone else to use, and it has 10,000 miles on it. I have a, a used commercial treadmill that I've just recently bought, and it's in my basement. This morning I went down to say, how fast could it go? Okay, Because this guy was going 13 miles an hour. My treadmill, without me on it, the fastest it will go is 14 miles an hour. Barely faster than what this guy was running for 26.2 miles, etc. A team effort. Okay? Incredible, though. Did you get on to see if you could keep up with it, or would you fall? <laughs> I ran Friday. 3.6 miles or whatever. My pace was 9 minutes, no, 8 minutes, 50 seconds. Okay? This guy was running twice as fast as I ran, and he ran for, I ran for 3.5 miles or whatever. He ran for 26.2 miles. Just incredible. Okay? So, how does a person do that? Number one, it's a team effort. Okay? Number two, he was gifted of God with a set of lungs that allowed him to do that. When I was a sophomore, maybe junior, junior year, junior year in high school, I was running seven miles every morning out on the track and whatnot. I would do that before school. And um, I had weights that I put on my ankles and all that sort of stuff, etc. That's crazy. But anyway, um, so I knew running fairly well just from a recreational standpoint. I wasn't trying to beat a time or whatever, but I was trying to keep fit and whatnot. And for some reason, I got this that seven miles a morning was good. Um, one day at PE, that was in the days when you had to take PE every year. Um, one day in PE, the coach said... Stay out of the way. Bernie is going to break our school record in the mile. We have two pacers. They're going to take the first mile, half mile. They don't have to run the whole mile. They'll get out of it because they're doing the pacer for us, which was in, in high school. You had to run this much or whatever, and, and it was always a burden. And they, they got out of it because they, they were going to pace him and make sure that his pace was what he wanted for the first half mile. He was going to set the, the mile record. Glenn, my best friend, and I were in the back of the pack. We were the loafers. And we started on the, on the mile, trying to stay out of the way. And this was an eighth-mile track rather than a quarter-mile track, eighth-mile track. And we got, Bernie got about a halfway around the first lap. We were way behind him. And Glenn whispered over to me and said, Wendell? We can't let him do this. We. 
So I said, okay. And so he and I started at a pace trying to catch up with him on each lap. At the end, when we hit the finish line, Glenn was about one half pace behind Bernie. He did not catch him. I was about two strides behind that. My time was four minutes and 34 seconds. Wow. This guy ran 20. Okay. So I finished. Okay. I'm bent over. I'm heaving. I, I could taste blood in my lungs. I, this was all I could do. Okay. To catch that guy. And I never made it. Okay. And this guy did this for 26.2 miles continuously, okay? And if you go sometime today and look at the video of him at the end of the race, he is dancing and jumping and running around and everyone's hugging him and he's taking a Kenyan flag and running and he's running back and forth, back and forth, back and forth at the end of this 26.2 miles. Not tired. Doesn't look it. Incredible. Okay? All right. First Corinthians nine, twenty-four through twenty-seven. Surely you know that many runners take a part in a race, but only one of them wins the prize. Run then in such a way as to win the prize. Every athlete in training submits to strict discipline in order to be crowned with a wreath that will not last. But we do it for one that will last forever. That is why I run straight for the finish line. That is why I'm like a boxer who does not waste his punches. I harden my body with blows and bring it under complete control to keep myself from being disqualified after having called others to the contest. Second passage. Second Timothy 4. 6 through 8. As for me, the hour has come for me to be sacrificed. The time is here for me to leave this life. I have done my best in the race. I have run the full distance, and I have kept my faith. And now, there is waiting for me the victory prize of being put right with God, which the Lord the righteous judge will give me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who wait with love for him to appear. A couple things about this. Number one, we are gifted of God by where we are born, where we live, our influences, and who comes into our life to help us on this journey. It's a gift. Have nothing to do with it. Okay? If we have good friends who help us on this journey, on this run, then it is great. I can thank the pacers in my life who have started me out on a good pace. If you inherited good parents, thank God. You know, if you inherited good friends, if you happened upon them or whatever, thank God. You know, it's a team effort. You know, it's um, It's amazing. You know, I'm just, because I run, and I still run some, um, I'm just blown away by a guy who could run 
26.2 miles at 4 minutes and 34 seconds per mile for 26 miles. But I will have to say that it was a team effort. He was gifted of God. And he's had a big support. You know, he's devoted his life to this. He's now 34 years old and he's devoted his life to this. Incredible. But we have a more sure word of prophecy, things to help us on our way. It's a gift of God. Yes. In addition to what you've already mentioned, the, the team effort and the, the being grace born with a certain set of talents and skills, he's also had to comply with the design law of exertion. Oh, yes. And if he had, if he had taken that talent and laid on the couch and watched television, even Cheetos and drinking Diet Coke for the past thirty some years, he would not have he would not have accomplished what he accomplished today. Twice a day he goes out on training runs. His training runs are less than five minutes a mile for more than twenty miles, twice a day. Okay? So I mean yeah. Um, Paul, Paul referenced that in the first quote you read that he he trains. He trained his body to to um, to run the race in, in harmony with the law of exertion. He trains it mentally and physically and spiritually. If anyone gets my notes, this is not part of my notes. <laughs> we will now start my notes. Um, so anyway, all right. Um, today's um, lesson is lesson number four in Ezra and Nehemiah, and it covers essentially Ezra four and five. And Nehemiah 4 and 6, and it's about the building of the wall of the, of the returnees from GD. And sometimes you read this lesson, you think, what does it have to do with me, you know? I'm not building a wall, whatever. And so um, bear with us. The, the title of the lesson is um, Facing Opposition, okay? I, I looked up four, and I came up with four quotes that I liked about opposition, Okay? Number one, I do not know what to think of my friends. They think opposition is so negative. Second statement, opposition. Are you for it or against it? (laughs) Number three, Albert Einstein. Great spirits have always encountered a violent opposition from mediocre minds. Number four, and I can't pronounce this last name, I apologize. It's Matshona Diwan, I don't know, Y-O, something like that. Anyway, when people try to bury you, remind yourself you are a seed. All right. There's a a quote that we have in this class that we like to read about opposition. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. It is true we live in the world, but we do not fight from worldly motives. The weapons we use in our fight are not the world's weapons, but God's powerful weapons, which we use to destroy strongholds. We destroy false arguments. We pull down every proud obstacle that is raised against the knowledge of God. We take every thought captive and make it obey Christ. If that's not training, 
that's using God's natural laws in furthering his cause. The memory text today was from Ezra 5.5. It was quoted from New King James. But the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews, so they could not make them cease to till a report could go to Darius, or Darius, or however you pronounce the thing. Then a written answer was returned concerning this manner. So that was a memory verse. Opposition. What do you think of when you think of opposition? Okay? There is real opposition. Okay? There's real opposition to something you are doing or whatever. It can be open. Or it can be passive-aggressive. Kind of hidden. Okay? There's imagined opposition. I don't know if you have friends who see an, an opposing thing in everything that happens. Okay? It's not real. There's other ways that opposition occur. Infighting within the organization can be just as destructive as external opposition. Something called directional incongruence. So if someone or something is taking an organization one direction and another entity is taking it in a different, in a different direction than desired or the designed, then that's going to be work effectively as opposition. Okay? Inactivity of team members. Have you ever tried to haul something heavier than yourself? Yesterday, um, the department secretary, I was giving a lecture to two residents, and we were discussing x-ray findings. And she came and says, all of a sudden we heard this terrible crash. Boom. We stopped. We listened. No one screamed. No one moaned. So it was like, okay, it was safe to go on. So we, we continued talking. And then about, I don't know, two minutes later, a sheepish secretary comes in the dialogue and says, can someone help? And apparently something had fallen over and crashed and broken to, in parts. And so they were trying to get it off this person. Anyway. Sometimes... Um, if you have inactivity of team members, it's, it's like walking in mud, you know, just trying to get the whole team to go someplace, and yet there's inactive members you're having to haul along with you. Okay? Can you think of opposition stories in the Bible? What do you think of when you think of opposition in the Bible? Ezra, okay. What else? Saul and David. Saul and David, yeah. Okay. Moses and, Moses. Moses and Pharaoh. I had that one. Paul is wife, Jesus. Christ. I had that one. Paul. Okay. Joseph and Joseph in two realms in his home, his brothers it was opposing him. Okay. And then in Egypt, you know, Potiphar's wife. And then he gets in jail. Daniel. Okay. Daniel. Elijah. And Elijah. Okay. Samson. Samson. Didn't think about that. Yeah. Who? Mordecai. Mordecai. Yeah. Okay. I had to pause right here. Jonah. Yeah. I have to pause right here about Mordecai and whatnot. You know, I like it whenever it comes time for the Jewish festival because they have a little tri triangle hoppentaschen or toppentaschen something. It's a little, it's called um, Jewish hats. And it's a pastry that's filled with some little kind of uh, fruit treat in the middle, etc. And it's uh, after, you know, his hat. 
you know, and it's a part of the festival. But, you know, we had a Jewish bakery, and it was always, yeah, is it time yet? You know, no! <laughs> I like those. Paul opposed Peter, Galatians 2, 11 to 14, and in public, over behavior that he thought was not Christian. Judas. Judas. Yeah. Acts 4. The widows of the Greeks raised some protest and opposition because, wait a minute, we're not being treated in a Christian manner, not being equals. If you look in the quarterly for Sabbath afternoon, um, the first paragraph, Ezra 3 through 6, is structurally thematically covering different historical periods of opposition to the rebuilding of the temple. Recognizing this thematic approach will help clarify the overall message. Dropping down to the third paragraph. Resistance to the work of God is prevalent theme in the two books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Therefore, it's not surprising that rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem incited opposition and persecution. Wherever we turn in today's world, the work of the Lord is resisted. Satan tries to be, make sure that the gospel doesn't spread quickly as it threatens his dominion. In Ezra and Nehemiah, how do the Jews handle the opposition? This describes the opposition to the building of the second Jewish temple. Okay? Was the building of the temple necessary? Why? Could Christ's mission have been possible without a physical temple for worship to occur? Yes. Yes. Okay. Was the first temple, the, the tent sanctuary, not the Solomon's temple, but the first uh, temple for the children of Israel, necessary for worship of the children of Israel to occur? No. Why was it built? Teaching tool? What else? That didn't make me a sanctuary. Was it necessary for God? No. So why did God put it that way? Humans crave a physical entity to worship and focus their attentions in their worship. If you think out through history... Um, mankind is, has a predilection to revere certain places or objects or unusual people. We took a cruise to the, to the Caribbean some years ago and unfortunately so did, a, so did a hurricane. And so most of our cruise was aimed at dodging the hurricane. About the time we'd go one direction, the hurricane would go that direction. So we dodged a different direction, and the hurricane would go that direction. And eventually they said, well, it wasn't planned, but we're going to land on the Yucatan Peninsula and take you, we'll have some excursions to the Mayan temples. Now, as an orthopedic surgeon who takes care of club feet, I was, I was interested to see that the Mayans revered people who were born with club foot deformities. So much so... That if a child was not, if, there, if they didn't have a person in that generation, which they could raise to the position of priesthood with the deformed feet, they have an apparatus 
which they strapped the selected child into to create club feet deformities. We crave things to worship as humans. We build up things to worship. All, but all aspects of the temple as we know it, pretty much most of the aspects, were actually pointing toward Christ. Some of them not, but most of the objects in the temple were direct pointing to Christ and his ministry and some aspect of his worship. What was the purpose of building the temple and restoring the wall for the people who were doing it? What was their purpose of doing it? Whenever Nehemiah went to talk to the king and said, how can I be happy whenever my, the walls are torn down and the temple is destroyed? Why did he, what was the, what was the deal? Yes, it provided a focus for worship, okay? If you compare it to the Samaritans and what was happening on at the time, just nor- the northern people, we'll get to that in a minute, it helped purify their worship to keep them separate from other worship forms that they were constantly being attracted away from. And a side here that I didn't have, um, there's a passage that says, I look into the hills. From whence does my help come? Or do I look to the hills from whence my help comes? The implied answer is no. My help comes from the Lord. What were the hills? On top of the hills were special trees in which you hung things that now we put tinsel on our Christmas tree. But it usually was entrails of, of animals that they sacrificed and they hung the entrails on the tree. That was the sacred trees. And then they, beneath the trees, they had sacred acts that were some not so nice. Okay? So it helped purify the worship to, to a focus the worship to God. Yes? In harmony with that, it, it removed focus from self. It, 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 it kept them from being idle. It kept them from being um, focused solely on producing food and shelter for their families. It, it, it focused, it, it felt an outward focus instead of an inward focus. It prepared their hearts for worship. But also, it was a witness to the nations around them of okay. what God could do okay. for his people. In 2019, do we have a temple at the present time? Yes, our bodies. Okay. Our bodies? What else? The soul temple? Okay. Is there current opposition to purification and restoration of the current temple. Okay? Are there people who say, no, there's no way you'll ever be perfect in this life. No point in trying. Okay? Are there whole religious thoughts in which, hey, that's not necessary. I'm saved. That's all there is to it. There's a passage from um, one of our church founders, Evangelism 139.5. The beneficent operations of nature are not accomplished by abrupt and startling interpositions. 
Men are not permitted to take her work into their own hands. God works with the calm, regular operation of his appointed laws. And so it is in spiritual things. Satan constantly seeking to produce effects by rude and violent thrust. But Jesus found access to minds by the pathway of their most familiar associations. He disturbed as little as possible. Get that around it. He disturbed as little as possible their accustomed train of thought by abrupt actions or prescribed rules. He honored man with his confidence and thus placed him on his honor. He introduced old truths in a new and precious light. Thus, when only 12 years old, he astonished the doctors of the law by his questions in the temple. Christ met the disciples after his resurrection on a beach. They had been fishing all night, had been unsuccessful. Then he told them to, to catch some fish. They got this fish, except they brought up to the shore. He already had a fire going. What did he feed them? Bread and fish. What would have happened if Christ fed the disciples veggie burgers and fruit salad on the beach instead of fish? What, what would the take-home message have been? We can't live our... Yeah. Or it's bizarre. You know, something else, etc. You know. What is the take-home message... From people not of our faith, when they come to an Adventist potluck, what is the take-home message when we feed the homeless? When we were in North Carolina, we participated in a homeless um, ministry briefly. It was periodic once a month or something like that. I can't remember exactly the timing or whatever. But um, So we were supposed to feed the homeless... I think it was fried chicken, maybe it was roast chicken, some kind of chicken. Chicken and, I don't know, it's green beans or baked beans or something, you know, is protein, vegetable, bread, beverage, whatever. We made the mistake of having vegetarians cook the chicken. I was standing in line serving the stuff when a guy came back and threw his plate at me. I'm sorry, sir. The cook didn't know how to cook. It was interesting. Let's put it that way. All right. Um, all right. Let's go to Sunday's lesson. Um, opposition begins. Um, Ezra 4, 1 through 5. The enemies of the temple of Judah and, and Benjamin heard that those who had returned from exile were rebuilding the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel. So they went to see Zerubbabel and the heads of the clans and said, Let us join you in building the temple. We worship the same God you worship, and we have been offering sacrifices to him ever since Emperor Urasad of of Assyria sent us here to live. Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the heads of the clans told them, We don't need your help. To build a temple for the Lord our God. We will build it ourselves. Just as Emperor Cyrus of Persia commanded us. Who were these people? Who offered to help? The neighbors. Do we have a name for the neighbors now? Samaritans? 
Who were the Samaritans? From where were they brought? 2 Kings 17, 24 tells you where they're brought. But anyway, essentially what happened is the Assyrians came in, wiped out the Israelites, took the remaining people who were alive, hauled them off to a foreign land, brought in people from other lands, Assyria predominantly, brought them in and settled them, and then the lions attacked. And the emperor said, wait a minute, something has gone wrong. Why are wild beasts attacking these settlers that I have put in this land? And so then what he did, he went back to the exiles in Assyria from Israel and found a priest and brought him back, you can read it in 2 Kings, brought him back to the land and set up worship to the true God. Okay? And they worshiped the true God ever since as well as their other gods. Okay? And when Judah and Benjamin, people came back from Babylon, they said, we're having nothing to do with you. You can't join us. Okay? What was their status in the times of Christ? Say a class. Could you talk to a Samaritan? I don't recommend that everyone go to Israel. I went to Israel, had fun. My wife says, don't talk about it. But, 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 but I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about it. Okay? Because you realize that, one, that most of the stuff they show you is fake. You know, is, is not, has nothing to do with where Christ walked or whatever, etc. That's a long discussion I won't get into, etc. But I did... I go run in the mornings when I was there. I get on my, my exercise clothes and go run out in the place. I'd say, okay, I'm going to run this direction. I go four blocks and I'm going to run this way direction four blocks. I'm going to run this direction four blocks and hopefully I come back. You know, and make it back to the same spot I started. You know, ran from where we were at the hotel in um, Tel Aviv down to Joppa. You know, to the House by the sea, Peter was, etc. So ran down a couple miles. So I don't know how many miles it is. Two miles, four miles, something like that. And ran down, ran back along the beach. It's wonderful. They have a nice bike path along by the beach. It's a great place to run, etc. I passed by a Orthodox Jewish neighborhood. I didn't know where I was. So I thought I'd stop and ask someone, where I was, he would not talk to me. He was trying to remain pure. Okay? And I obviously, I was not dressed like one of him. My hair was not like his, and the little hat and all that other stuff. Little curls and whatever. So, who told the Jews to be separate? God. Okay? Just pausing that for ancient times for just a second. Do we, as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, as Protestants, protest? Okay? But do we have anything equivalent today? A people group that we blame for many ills. Okay? 
A movement or organization that is characterized by negative descriptives in our literature. A group or organization that is described as apostatizing, that has combined worship of God with pagan practices. Different worship practices from our own. Okay? Reading 2 Corinthians 6.14, does this apply or not? 2 Corinthians 6.14 through 16. Do not try to work together as equals with unbelievers, for it cannot be done. How can right and wrong be partners? How can light and darkness live together? How can Christ and the devil agree? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? How can God's temple come to terms with pagan idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Now, does that text have anything to do with the organization to which I refer? That was a yes or no question. <laughs> Let me repeat the question. Does 2 Corinthians 6, 14-16, which I just read, have anything to do with, the, with our individual relationship to individuals of the organization to which I refer? Speak more. Maybe it's more than a yes and no question. What, what, do you, what, do you, what do you mean? It could be. Are these people believers in Christ? Yes. yes. Are they then truly to be tr characterized as unbelievers? No. Are they our brothers and sisters in Christ? How did Christ treat the Samaritan people? What are the stories about Samar Samaritans or Samaria that are during Christ's time? What are they? The Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan. Samaritan. Oh, let me mark him off the list, okay? The Samaritan woman. The Samaritan, where? At the well. At the woman at the well. Okay, the Good Samaritan, the woman at the well. And they wanted to call down fire from heaven. Okay, so they came to a village. The village wouldn't accept him because he was going on to Jerusalem. And so he said, hey, you know. But what did he do? He did not call down fire from heaven. He rebuked the disciples. And then what did he do? Walked away. Went to the next village. Okay? All right. Went to another village. Anything else? Any other things about Samaritans? The, the ten lepers and the one... Ten lepers. Good. Had that one? Okay, so ten lepers, and one of them was a Samaritan, came back and thanked God and praised God. Okay? Is there any other re reference to Samaritans in Christ's ministry? The disciples were sent out two by two to everyone except for the Samaritans. Why? That was the first trip. The first assignment was go everywhere except for the Samaritans. And then the next time, go even to the Samaritans. Okay? Why the difference? If the disciples, during their first trip, would have gone and taught to the Samaritans, would the Orthodox Jews ever touch them or talk to them again? No. It would have shut down Christ's ministry. It had nothing to do about Christ saying they're not worthy of us, they shouldn't be talked to, or whatever. This had all to do with he still was trying to woo his own people. And until they totally rejected him, he could not go to somewhere else because it would have been an automatic rejection. He, 
That Orthodox guy who I stopped to ask for directions, he couldn't talk to me because he would not be allowed back if he was contaminated. Okay? So it had nothing to do with Christ saying these are not good, worthy people. It just had these people over here I can't reach unless we, we wait a little bit. Okay? There is a timeliness to our ministry. One other thing that we, we need to kind of talk about is when the woman at the well went back and got the village, the village said, hey, come on, and he did, despite the fact that he risked being rejected when he went on to Jerusalem where he was going, but he was on his way to his death. He was already being rejected. At that point, there was nothing to lose from his people. Okay? Manuscript 44, 1894. Jesus assumed humanity that he might meet humanity. He brings men under the transforming power of truth by meeting them where they are. He gains access to the heart by securing sympathy and confidence, making all feel that his identification with their nature and interests is complete. The truth came from his lips, beautiful in its simplicity, yet clothed with dignity and power. What a teacher was our Lord Jesus Christ. How tenderly did he treat every honest inquire after truth that he may gain admission to their sympathies and find a home in the heart. Sometimes I, I wonder about some of the statements that are made in our billboards and whatnot about other people. <coughs> anyway, all right. Uh, Monday's lesson. Um, unfortunately, the opposition the Jews encountered from the surrounding nations, as described in Ezra 4 through 6, left them afraid and unwilling to work on the temple. Why did the Jews who had returned to Palestine stop working on the temple? What kind of opposition did that take? What happened? The people around them sent a letter to the emperor. And the emperor sent his soldiers saying, stop. Okay? How do you know that you are doing what you're supposed to be doing? Okay, so I trained at Loma Linda University Medical Center. And um, there's two events that happened at Loma Linda that I would like to use as an illustration. One is, and I don't have the dates, sorry, probably in the 70s, early 70s or so, the, Lo, the Loma Linda University was, was training uh, physicians and they needed rotations, clinical rotations, so that the, the medical students would have experience. They did not have enough people coming to the medical center. So they said, what are we going to do? There was a medical facility in Los Angeles, 60 miles away. And so... They had a statement that said, we have prayed about this, and we have decided, it appears that the Lord is leading us to send these students to Los Angeles. They went down there, rotated for two years. Two years later, they had more students, more patients at the, at the main facility. A communique was, was distributed by the board that said, we have prayed... And it appears that the Lord has led us to consolidate the clinical training on Loma Linda campus. Two opposite directions, and yet both were perceived as being the Lord's leading. 
Okay? That's something a little more direct about Loma Linda. In 1967, the university voted to merge La Sierra and Loma Linda, which is about 18 miles apart, into one unified university. Okay? In 1990, the university voted to separate into two separate universities and campuses. So now today it's Loma Linda University and then it's, it's, it's La Sierra. Both decisions were portrayed as being by the Lord's leading. How do you know what you're supposed to be doing? Ezra 5, 1 and 2. At that time, two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, son of Edo, began to speak in the name of the God of Israel to the Jews who lived in Judah and Jerusalem. When Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, son of Jehozadak, heard their messages, they began to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, and the two prophets helped them. Okay? Third paragraph. The Jews had stopped building because they were afraid. But God had sent them to Judah to rebuild the temple in the city. And he had a plan. Since they were afraid, he had to do something in order to encourage them. Therefore, he called two prophets to step in. Human opposition does not stop God. Even if the Jews contributed to this opposition by their own actions, God did not abandon them. He worked through the prophets to motivate and propel them into action again. I'm intrigued by the statement. Human opposition does not stop God. Do you believe that? Okay. If nothing stops God, why should I be worried or stressed by fulfilling God's word and instructions to me? God's going to do it anyway. Then can we stop God? Sometimes God allows things to happen that he doesn't plan it that way, but he allows our choices to be carried out to show sometimes what his will would have been had we allowed him to do it. I mean, sometimes we oppose God's will and he allows us to do that to show how by following our own ways the outcome would be. Okay. Can we slow the work of God? Yes. Okay. Is it possible to delay his coming? Yes, we have. We've already done it, yeah. Okay. 2 Peter 3, 11-13 Since all these things will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people should you be? Your life should be holy and dedicated to God as you wait for the day of God and do your best to make it come soon. The day when the heavens will burn up and be destroyed and the heavenly bodies will be melted by heat. But we wait for what God has promised, new heavens and new earth where righteousness will be at home. Who loses if I stop cooperating with God? Okay. What was Haggai's message? Anyone know? Essentially, you read chapter 1. Haggai, why are you living in paneled houses when my house is destroyed? Because the people were neglecting God's house and building their own. God withheld his blessings with the rain and stuff on it. So, paneling. Do you know anything about paneling in the Bible? Paneling. Uh-huh. Paneled houses. They talk about paneled houses. You know anything about paneling? Every reference to paneling in the Bible has something to do about cedar. 
Where did cedar come from? Where? Lebanon. Lebanon. Why was the cedar brought from Lebanon? For what purpose was it brought from Lebanon? That was building materials for the temple. And they were taking it. Since they weren't using it for the temple, they sawed it up and made it paneling for their own houses. But if you look at that word, everywhere it's used, it talks about it's God's house and the cedar for God's house. It's not for anyone else's house. Okay? So they were using building materials, the, the, the temple's building materials, to make houses that were special. Not like the typical local home. Tuesday. Work stoppage. Third paragraph. One, two, three. It is apparent that the Jews realized that God had called them to rebuild the city and the temple, but because of strong opposition, they were afraid. I'd be afraid too if the army came marching up. Perhaps they came up with such excuses as now must not be the right time, or if this were truly God wanted us to do, he would have provided a way, or maybe we weren't supposed to come back here after all. When opposition gets in the way of doing what we believe God calls us to do, we have the tendency to question and doubt God's guidance. Shouldn't we? How do we know? We can easily convince ourselves that we made a mistake. Can we? I've made my share. Fear can paralyze our minds and our thoughts turn to despair and helplessness instead of being focused on the power of God. Were they supposed to keep working when the federal government showed up with an army to stop them? I'm just thinking that if the federal government showed up and told me, Wendell, you're not supposed to do that, I'd have a hard time convincing myself that I needed to continue doing what I was doing. You know? I mean, there's a few things I can say, yeah, God told me to do it, Sabbath and other things. But the rest of it is all optional. The enemies, okay, uh, are we to question our understandings when issues arise that make it difficult to accomplish something we think we're supposed to be doing? Yes. Yeah. That's what we're supposed to be doing. To use our minds. The enemies of the Jews wrote letters. You can read the letter to Arzixes, um Ezra 4, Ezra 4. Uh, come on. Ezra. Oops. Ezra 4, 11. This is the text of the letter to the Emperor Arzerxes from his servants who live west of the Euphrates. We want your majesty to know that the Jews who came here from your other territories have settled in Jerusalem, are rebuilding that evil and rebellious city. They've begun to rebuild the walls and will soon finish them. Your majesty, if the city is rebuilt, its walls are completed and the people will stop paying the taxes and your royal revenues will decrease. Now, because we are under obligation to your majesty, we do not want to see this happen. And so we suggest that you order a search to be made in the records of your ancestors kept. If you do, you will discover that this city has always been rebellious and that from ancient times it's given trouble to the kings and to the rulers of provinces. Its people have always been hard to govern. This is why the city was destroyed. And it goes on about whatever. Okay? The second paragraph, uh, 
Oh, I forgot. To be a troublemaker? To be hard to govern. That means that you think for yourself. I mean, we think about this with children. The ones who... A strong will. The stubborn ones are often good thinkers. Well, there is a, I do know that there is a correlation between intelligence and testing of boundaries. Yes. Okay? May your, chi- may your child be retired. No, I didn't say that. Um, and a good government is going to be aware of opposition in ways that hear and consider it, rather than just... Yeah, a good government. Yeah, Earth and Government. Yeah, one of the fundamental differences between Christ's government and earthly government. But I think it's a model for those of us who are in positions of leadership and responsibility in the home and in the workplace that we are not dictatorial, that we consider the points of view of people who oppose us. Okay. Um, what, 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 was what in the letters correct? Yes. Yes. Was the reason to stop, was this reason to stop work on the temple? No. No? When Satan presents your faults and my faults to me and you, is he telling the truth? <laughs> yes. Well, yes. Okay. Historical truth. Is he telling all the truth? He's telling the truth about your failings and faults. He's not telling the truth that you are actually a victor in Christ Jesus and that it's useful to try to follow Jesus. What words do you have in your head? We all have these little loops that play over and over our heads about how we might fail or not do things right or whatever. We all have those, okay? Past failings, past problems, whatever. They go over and over in our heads. What do you hear over and over? So, I just looked up in my, this version of, of the Bible for the New Testament for the word victory. What you have in your hands to read is passages that have to do with the word victory. Who has John sixteen thirty one through 33? A. It says 16, 29-33. Okay, read it. Then his disciples said to him, Now you are speaking plainly without using figures of speech. We know now that you know everything. You do not need to have someone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you believe now? The time is coming and is here, is already here, when all of you will be scattered, each of you to your own home, and I will be left all alone. But I am not really alone, because the Father is with me. I have told you this, so that you will have peace by being united to me. The world will make you suffer, but be brave. I have defeated the world. We've had, we've had failings, but God has defeated the world. We are his victors with him. B, Romans eight thirty one thirty nine. 39. Me. Okay. In view of all this, what can we say? If God is for us, who can be against us? Certainly not God, who did not even keep back his own son, but offered him for us all. He gave us his son. Will he not also freely give us all things? Who will accuse God's chosen people? God himself declares them not guilty. 
Who then will condemn them? Not Christ Jesus, who died, or rather, who was raised to life and is at the right side of God, pleading with him for us. Who then can separate us from the love of Christ? Can trouble do it, or hardships, or persecution, or hunger, or poverty, or danger, or death? As the scripture says, for your sake, we are in danger of death at all times. We are treated like sheep that are going to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we have complete victory through him who loved us. For I am certain that nothing can separate us from his love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor other heavenly rulers or powers, neither the present nor the future, neither the world above nor the world below. There is nothing in our creation that will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, which is ours through Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't this a better tape to be playing your mind than what you hear? See, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty six. Death gets its power to hurt from sin, and sin gets its power from the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, my dear friends, stand firm and steady. Keep busy always in your work for the Lord, since you know that nothing you do in the Lord's service is ever useless. That's a powerful statement. Nothing we do is useless. Second Corinthians 2.14 Thanks be to God, for in union with Christ we are always led by God as prisoners in Christ's sacred possession. God uses us to make the knowledge about Christ spread everywhere like a sweet fragrance. <clears throat> for we are like a sweet-smelling incense offered by Christ to God which spreads among those who are being saved and those who are being lost. For those who are being lost, it is a deadly stench that kills. But for those who are being saved, it is a fragrance that brings life. Who, then, is capable for such a task? We are not like so many others who handle God's messages as if it were cheap merchandise. But because God has sent us, we speak with sincerity in his presence as servants of Christ. Okay. What tape do you have in your head? Philippians 1, 27-30. Now the important thing is that your way of life should be as the gospel of Christ requires, so that whether or not I am able to go and see you, I will hear that you are standing firm with one common purpose, and that the only one desire you are fighting together for the faith of the gospel, and that with one only desire you are fighting together for the faith of the gospel. Don't be afraid of your enemies. Always be courageous, and this will prove to them that they will lose and that you will win, because it's God who gives you the victory. For you have been given the privilege of serving Christ, not only by believing in him, but also by suffering for him. Now you can take part with me in the battle, it's the same battle you saw me fighting in the past, and as you hear, this is the one I'm fighting still. Second Timothy 4, 6-8 through 8. As for me, the hour has come for me to be sacrificed, and the time is here for me to leave this life. I have done my best in the race, I have run the full distance, and I have kept the faith. And now there is waiting for me the victory prize of being put right with God, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on the day. And not only to me, but to all those who wait with love for him to appear. 1 John 5, 1 through 5. Anyone? Did I not 
I must not have given that one. Okay? Revelation 2, 25 through 28. But until I come, you must hold firmly to what you have, to those who win the victory, who continue to the end to do what I want. I will give the same authority that I received from my Father. That's incredible. I will give them authority over the nations to rule them with an iron rod and to break them to pieces like clay pots. I will also give them the morning star. Revelation 3, 5. Those who win the victory will be clothed like this in white, and I will not remove their names from the book of the living. In the presence of my Father and of his angels, I will declare openly, they belong to me. Revelation 15, 2 through 4. Then I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire. I also saw those who had won the victory over the beast in its image, and over the one whose name is represented by a number. They were standing by the sea of glass, holding harps that God had given them, and singing the song of Moses, the servant of God and the son of the Lamb. Lord God Almighty, how great and wonderful are your deeds. Kings of the nations, how right and true are your ways. Who will stand in awe of you, Lord? Who will refuse to declare your greatness? You alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship you because your just actions are seen by all. Last one, Revelation 21, 5 through 7. That's right. Okay. Then the one who sits on the throne said, And now I make all things new. He also said to me, Write this, because these words are true and can be trusted. And he said, It is done. I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end. To anyone who is thirsty, I will give the right to drink from the spring of the water of life without paying for it. Those who win the victory will receive this from me. I will be their God and they will be my children. I think what we've just read is much better loops to hear than what the devil has to keep reminding us. And I think that's the reason we're supposed to read this word over and over again. So we develop easy grooves for those passages to hear in our heads. Let's bow our heads. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for who you are. May we honor you. Help us that we may be like you in relationship to others. May we treat other brothers and sisters in Christ with compassion. May we be witnesses of your love to those who do not know you. And may we honor you in all that we do and say. Amen.